So would you join me in Colossians? And we'll begin with a word of prayer. Tonight I promised you that uh, we would wrap up by talking about equipping that our family needs, smartphone smart. So we've laid down a pretty significant um, biblical theology of technology, and then now we're trying to transition to more practical things. So it's going to be rapid fire uh, scripture verses and principles to kind of layer upon what we've already laid down. Uh, you're going to want to have, I don't have handouts for you tonight, so if you want to have a piece of scratch paper nearby to write down some, um, some notes along the way on your, on your own, that would probably be most helpful for you. Um, so we're going to talk about smartphone smart tonight, get some practical things for how we can start to use these principles we've learned in our family and shepherding our children and ourselves, <laughs> actually. So let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? And we'll get back to Colossians in just a little while. Our Father, we thank you for the time you have here to uh, just kind of once again revisit this this important subject. Um, as it as it goes, our lives are increasingly uh, interacting with uh, digital media and uh, in our in our devices. And so, Lord, as we uh, think about that, we are, we know that even in those ways, um, we have temptation laid before us to use these tools for your glory or for our own glory. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we'd be mindful and useful using these tools in the ways that would be bringing you most glory. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help our time together as we look at these uh, four categories of um, users and how we might uh, be mindful of our own ways of temptation so we can be useful and skillful in using the scriptures to combat areas of temptation. And then, uh, Lord, help us as we seek to raise up a generation behind us, after us, who will, who will walk in your steps, who will walk in the light, who follow you with their whole heart, and be able to use the, the tools provided to them in God-glorifying and Christ-honoring ways. And we'll pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, last week we concluded, well, yeah, last week we concluded with four kinds of users and I thought that would be helpful to kind of take a class of this with this spectrum of people, different categories of life, uh, and break you up into four subsets to kind of help you see what kind of changes might be more uh, strategic for you to make. And we broke up those four categories into these four. Remember them? They were the amuser, the overuser, the misuser, and the abuser. Okay. And that was just a simple way to try to categorize how you your particular style of using digital tech. And uh, maybe you're used to these enneagrams. I, I, I was talking to Holly about these. Am I saying that right? Enneagram? On, yeah, something like that. These things on you see these things all the time on the internet where you can take these personality tests and find out what kind of personality you are and what kind of what your spirit animal and all this crazy weird stuff. And uh, I don't want that to be this here, but I do want you to kind of look at these character qualities, the characteristics, and see if you fit into one or more of these categories, and then it will be helpful in you thinking through strategically how you can make some changes um, with regard to your, to your um, use of tech. So we talked about the amuser, and uh, in Titus, cha- or, sorry, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin, and we're going to kind of move quickly through some scripture texts to kind of talk about some of the characteristics of someone who's an amuser. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 instructs us from the beginning here. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, listen to this, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So he talks about this consequence of what it means to be raised with Christ, walking with Christ, uh, being seated with him, uh, having enjoyed this new status we have as believers in Christ. It, it It necessitates a certain break in the way of life we used to live and a certain way of considering our our bodies dead to these things that would these desires these passions these these things we long for and lust after and to see them as idolatry even in this passage so 
when we're looking at this from the standpoint of being a muser, this is a, a muser is somebody we talked about last week as being someone who basically uses tech just for the purpose of entertainment, to just uh, consume um, media media content just for pleasure, um, that type of thing. And uh, while this in and of itself is not inherently a sinful act, but it can become that when uh, users use their devices to push off hard work or responsibilities, or they use it as escape from pressures in life. And so amusers tend to do that. So flip over with me to Titus chapter 2. We're going to kind of do a somewhat uh, uh, scattered survey here. I pardon that uh, we will be jumping around so much, but there is, this is a quite frequently uh, visited topic. Titus chapter 2 and verses 6 through 10. I bring this passage up because primarily the temptation is for young men to have an amusement mentality, be an amuser with their tech. I'm not saying that they're only ones who are susceptible to this, but particularly what they are, we are. And so it says this, Likewise, uh, Titus, you're to urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. So in this passage, Titus is, or Paul is instructing Titus to lay down what a good model and example looks like for a young man in the church, and I read even further than that, but to lay down something, to have a lifestyle that's befitting and becoming of someone who claims to have the true doctrine of God, to be, not be someone who, um, is, uh, uh, who, who, is, who is not undignified, who is uh, bringing reproach to Christ, and that's very easy for us to do. As young men, he goes on. Uh, let's look at a couple other passages here. Um, one of the Proverbs twenty-one seventeen. Let's skip over there. In fact, it might be helpful if I dole these out and you read them one after another. Can I get some volunteers to do that? That'll help us speed through this a little while. Proverbs twenty-one twenty or twenty-one seventeen. Anyone willing to read that one? Dave, All right, I'm going to assign Ecclesiastes two one through two. Chris, would you be willing to read for me? Ecclesiastes two one through two. Clay, would you read 1 Peter 4, 3? And then, um, let's see, someone else, one more. Adam, will you do 2 Timothy 3, 4? And then that'll get us through the first four there, real quickly. All right, Proverbs chapter 21, 17. Dave, would you read that for us, please? Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Okay. Someone who's a, a lover of pleasure will become a poor man. Okay. So the idea of using our tech devices to play games and be completely immersed in a world of pleasure can expect to come to poverty over time if that is not a, something that's carefully monitored and carefully dealt with, right? So we can kind of see an application there. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 2. Chris? Yeah, okay, so Solomon's conclusion, having been able to indulge every pleasure he could have probably desired with his life, he said this was vanity and have no use, um, okay. Um, first Peter First Peter 4, 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay, so all those are categories of pleasure ways that we seek out pleasure and that's characteristic of a Gentile way of life, a life that's unredeemed and unregenerate, so not becoming of someone who claims Christ and uh, also along with that same idea, uh, the times in which we live. Uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 4 Adam? Traitors, heavy, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Yeah, one of the characteristic features of our age is that they'd be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So that, that love of pleasure is pitted against a love for God. And you'll see that uh, often the contrast is made here in the scriptures. If you remember the soil 
parable in Luke chapter 8 where there was thorny soil. Jesus spoke about the thorns and the, and the, the overtaking of the thorns, overtook, taking the seed. And he said in that passage that, is that the, the thorns choked out the pleasures and the cares of this world, choked out the seed so that it would die. So that he, the thorns themselves kind of likened to pleasure, how it kind of takes away the fruitfulness of the word. Um, uh, you'll see that in your own life if you are prone to be an amuser. Your own love for God will diminish over time. Your heart will go cold um, because it's choked out by the amusements and the pleasures of the world. Um, Titus chapter 3, we were there not too long ago. And verse 3 uh, gives a, a clear intimation that uh, we should not be enslaved to pleasure, so pleasure can actually take us captive and hold us hostage, enslaving us. That's an interesting word picture, isn't it? We usually think that pleasures are something that we have control of, and we're just kind of killing time, and we're just kind of enjoying ourselves. But really, it's a enslavement. It's a um, it's a captivity, right? Um, James chapter five verse five warns about. Uh, those who indulge in pleasure are being fattened for the day of slaughter, he says. So there is heightened warning here, huge language that warns against those living in pleasure uh, without concern of the coming day of reckoning with God. Uh, that is a day of judgment. Second um, Peter chapter 2, verse 13. I know I'm kind of just quickly scanning these verses just to show you how often this topic comes up. Um, 2 Timothy 2.13, or sorry, 2 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to king as one in authority. Pardon me, I'm in 1 Peter. Let's go over to 2 Peter 2.13. And it says, Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Speaking of the ungodly, they counted a pleasure to revel. In the daytime, they are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed and cursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, forsaking the, uh, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey. Speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So, yeah, Peter's warning about those embedded within the church body and the church family who are reveling in the daytime. The idea of reveling is an interesting idea. The word reveling means to live in luxury or to live in indulgence, to, to indulge every passion of your heart, to, to do anything that would enfeeble the mind. It's kind of inherent in that idea. And I think that that's what we do when we amuse, we enfeeble our minds. We weaken our mind's ability to sustain thought and meditation upon Christ. So um, these are characteristic of the time in which the New Testament was penned. It's also characteristic of our times. And so um, we, are, we are sufficiently warned here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 tells us to walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does that mean to walk in the Spirit? Um, he goes on to say, uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 14, that we should put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. First Peter 2, 11 says, abstain um, against those fleshly lusts which war against your soul. And you could add literally myriads of more verses that talk about fleshly lusts, passions, and amusements, indulging the flesh. All of this is a very important battleground for the Christian life that we do not want to forsake. And it can be present in the area of amusement. So recognize that the sins that are inherent in this amuse, uh, being an amuser are sins like self-indulgence, pleasure-loving, reveling, uh, simulating sinful acts, even though you're not actually doing them. Some games, game systems, some game programs that you play, are you are simulating a sinful act. If you perpetrate that in, in real life, you are a criminal. And yet we simulate these acts and, seem, and have no conscience twinged about that, and uh, that's a problem. Romans chapter 1 tells us that one of the characteristics of our times would be that uh, we have pleasure, not only, we don't, uh, it says here, that, and if you look at Romans chapter 1 at the end, verse 28, I want to quote it correctly because uh, it does say, 
that we not only take pleasure in sin, but we take pleasure in them that do it. So look at that and think about that. We may not be doing it ourselves, but we're taking pleasure in those who would be perpetrating sinful acts. It says in, in verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to reprobate mind, or to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. That doesn't sound like social media, does it? Sometimes it can be. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding and untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. These are all coming out of a mind that's not submitted to God, that's reacting in rebellion against God, your maker. And although they know the ordinance of God, they know it. They suppress that truth. Remember, he was told it, telling us early in chapter 1. They know the ordinance of God, but those that practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those that practice them. So it's not just, we're not just indicted in this passage for doing the activity, it's giving approval to those who would do it. And so I think that there's some, some thoughtful things we need to go through, the types of um, amusements we participate in. Um, one th- I Kind of underneath each one of these, I have like a strategy to, to focus on what to change. I think you need to listen to this list of, of serious warnings from passages of Scripture like we just heard. You need to consider... And you need to be active about putting these things to death in your life. Amusement is not healthy for spiritual growth. It will, it will, actually, it will actually dampen your, ple- your, your desire for God. It will choke out the word in your life. It enslaves you. It places you in danger of judgment. It puts you in a place where you walk, in, not in the light, but in darkness. And you are, at, you are pitted in a war against your soul to which you... Um, the Bible tells us that we should absolutely abstain from. So we should be working on putting those things to death, that desire for escaping pressures of life, escaping our responsibilities while delving into binge-watching on, on media uh, platforms and such. We should be instead cultivating a love for God, denying ourselves, walking in the Spirit, and um, with his help, with his strength, learning to abstain from worldly lusts and and cultivating self-control. These are all practice, or these are all the directives of Scripture that are always accompanying these warnings. So, thinking about that, putting to death the things that would be uh, fighting against or mitigating our love for God, cultivating instead a love for God, denying self, walking in the Spirit, and abstaining from fleshly lusts and self-control. These are what I would try to focus on if amusement is the way that that's your particular sin style, if that's the way you particularly indulge in tech. You need to be thinking about those types of passages that we just referenced and how to practice those. So, again, not all amusement is wicked and evil, but you can easily move to the second category. I told you there's kind of like this progression, okay? So you might be an amuser that moves to the next category rather easily, what I call an overuser. Okay? So what is an overuser? Well, an overuser is someone who uses tech excessively. Well, that's a real nice wiggle word. What's excessive? How much is excessive? Um, anybody? What, what do you think is a good way, a good barometer to measure excessive use of tech? If you were to kind of quantify that for your, your son or daughter... Okay, using phone more than you're talking with people. Okay, that can that can definitely be an indicator. What do you lose track of time? Ah, okay. Yeah, you kind of go through that time warp where you just lose track of time. Look up and realize, wow, it's been a lot longer than I thought. Okay. Yeah, that could be an excessive use. Any others? How about with children? Anybody have this experience with children? They don't realize how long time's gone by and try to explain to them that's excessive. Well, excessive is just, it's just a, like I said, it's, it can be a little bit hard to define. So I also use um, a couple of other metrics to kind of explain what I mean by overuser. It's someone who has an in, inordinate desire. We use that word inordinate in church. Inordinate. What does inordinate mean? 
But inordinate just means out of order or out of priority. You're using tech, you're using your time with tech to displace other more higher priority things in your life, right? So instead of doing school or instead of doing chores or you're working around the house or you should be doing some other activity that's more profitable and you've obligated yourself to, instead of doing those things, you're on your phone or you're on your internet and you're displacing other priorities. That's that's being an overuser. You're excessively using it. You're inordinate. You're misprioritized. Okay? And I also use the word untimely. That's the second one. What's untimely? It means you're using it at wrong times. You're ill-timed. You're inopportune times that you're using this. Um, you're checking it, checking sports scores during the Sunday night service. Um, you know, you're that's that's you're an overuser. You're an overuser. I could almost make the category that you're a misuser at that point, but you're at least an overuser using it proper improper times. You're at, home, at school and you got the cell phone underneath your desk and you're messing with your cell phone during class or something like that. So an overuser, someone who uses tech, they may be using it in even legitimate ways. They're not using it to do illicit things, but they're doing it too much or in an inordinate way. I would say someone like who likes to post lengthy posts or write long texts who just go on and on and just divulge the deepest secrets of their heart in text form and who go on intemperate political rants on social media someone who enjoys debating or venting whatever happens to frustrate them that day, who has an impulsive use of the so, of social media platforms. These are people, I would say, these are overusers. Um, and yes, you could also say misusers as well. But I'm, sometimes this, there isn't necessarily a sinful element to this. It's just they tend to resort to this as their primary ways of interacting or ventilating their, their thoughts and their heart rather than the proper biblical ways. So that's kind of why I want to give it its own category. Uh, they would yeah. also be kind of categorized in, in terms of somebody that I just notice, like in my own life, I might sit down and, and I don't, I'm not really thinking through why I'm, I'm going to my smartphone in that moment. Right? Yeah, that would be precisely a good way to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So if like I'm not thinking through like why I'm using the device in that moment. So you pull up an app and you're just scrolling through a social media feed or you're doing yes. something like, why are you doing that? Like what is precisely. the purpose of why I'm doing this. So yeah. that may be an indicator that I'm overusing or that someone's overusing it. They're not thinking through why they're using Precisely. It it's it's non it's thoughtful, it's not conscious almost. It's mm-hmm. just we're just doing it maybe out of force of habit that we've created. Or you start I mean the way it's designed, you start on YouTube because you're looking up a renovation video and then an hour later you know you've, right. you've watched several other things that were recommended to you that caught your eye. But again, it's just like an intemperate, yes. inordinate kind of continuing to watch. Not that that's like inherently sinful, but if it gets away from you precisely in those moments. Those, those, those are excellent examples of what I'm trying to get at with the, um, the overuser. So, and we all can kind of get sucked into those types of situations easily, right? Yeah. So, so the algorithms. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they're gaming for. They're trying sure. to get you to do that. So. Yeah. Um, so this was this is kind of the category I kind of want to help. Mo- I think a large percentage of us will get into this area at one point or another. We might go beyond. Maybe amusement's not our particular area sin style, but we do sin in this way in which we allow our our time to not be thoughtfully used conscientiously, and it can sometimes um, delve into. We get into areas where we're inordinate. Um, some passage of scripture to think about. Uh, with relation to lengthy posts, texts, rants, debates online, if that's your thing, you tend to do that. I was, fool- I was a foolish person and did this a lot in my younger years. Quarreling over opinions. Bible tells us, Romans chapter 14, 1, not to do that. Uh, and Titus chapter 3, verse 9, tells us to avoid uh, wranglings over empty words and to avoid that type of thing. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 14, tells us, um, in fact, let's go look at that one for a moment. Second Timothy two. Two fourteen. Um, Paul urging Timothy, verse fourteen, to remind them, that's the church of these things, and solemnly charge, solemnly charge them in the presence of God. Listen, that's a pretty high invocation, isn't it? I'm I'm 
I'm solemnly charging you, okay, before the presence of God, not to wrangle about words. Why? Which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. What happens to those who, when we debate our theological issues, sometimes we have in-house theological debates that people within the church differ upon, and there are things that are legitimately worth discussing and debating over. But in the context of social media, and we're doing this out in the open, what is this doing to people who are outside the faith without Christ as they watch this? It's ruining the hearers, right? The word here is, has the idea of subverting them, overthrowing them. It's actually the Greek word catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. Um, debates and wranglings, theological debates and wranglings have a proper place, and they need to be done within the context of a, of a brotherhood and a, affirming that uh, Christians can sometimes defer. And I'm not saying there aren't issues worth battling and being divisive over, but definitely not on social media because you are subverting hearers. You are ruining them. You're protect, potentially casting a stumbling block before them that they should never recover from. So that's an overuser, maybe one of the outcomes of an overuser that they might not think about. Proverbs 18.13 says that we should not answer a matter before hearing it fully. Um, we, can, um, we can become busybodies on the Internet, on, the, on social media. Busybody is someone who's a meddler, someone who gets involved in the affairs and business of everyone else. And this is spoken strongly against in scriptures. Second um, Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's have a look at that one for a moment. In the, uh, in the, the case of the Thessalonians, um, in wake of the teaching that Christ was soon returning, many left their jobs and uh, left aside their responsibilities and in, in lieu of working with their hands and doing that which was profitable, they became busybodies, visiting house to house, became foolish talkers, and um, became meddlers. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians with strong words. Chapter 3, verse 11. It says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So uh, there's other places. 1 Timothy 5.13 we could look at. For the sake of time, I won't. But these ideas of people getting involved in other people's business, which is easy to do on social media, and uh, meddling in that. And you can disguise it as a compassionate concern for that person. Um, but notice in this passage, Second Timothy, we're look, looking at us here in the face. It says that they are, some among you, leading an undisciplined life. It could be that for some of us, if without the discipline of life and structure that we should be building in Christian character and the disciplines that even Pastor Brody was talking about in the previous session, in, in, in lieu of doing that, cultivating those practices, we've instead substituted some pretty undisciplined ways of handling our tech. So let that be kind of a, um, a slight rebuke to you if that's a potential danger. Um, uh, going on here... There's so many things I want to say. I'm going to just have to skip for, uh, for want of time. Uh, what is the strategic plan for change for someone who's an overuser? It's going to be very similar to the guy who's the amuser. Okay, he's going to ha- should be focusing on uh, his motivations. What are the motivations behind why he's resorting to tech and the use of it in the way that he does? He's usually unaware of his motivations. He's usually incognizant of the scriptural warnings and oblivious to the snares of sin that are, are here. Uh, becoming someone who is pushing off responsibilities, becoming a procrastinator, it's a subtle way, it's a subtle sin, and you maybe don't see it until the effects come to bear in your life, but that, is a, that could be a deadly and devastating way to just short-circuit the fruitfulness of your life for the Lord. So, be careful of that. Using your words to just vent whatever comes percolating through your mind and heart can be a way to lay damage to others who would be prospective hearers of the gospel uh, if you're doing that in, in social media circles. 
you could be a busybody and therefore be leading an undisciplined life. These are, these are small ways in which your overuse of tech is actually ruining your growth and maturity in the Lord. So that's just trying to be somewhat helpful to you. Maybe if you're thinking, well, that might be a large category of us using overusing the tech in that way. We don't see the consequences of it, therefore we're not motivated to make the change. I want you to be focused on that. Look at that. How is your time being wastefully spent being an overuser? And are you stewarding the tools that God's given you in the best ways possible? And I want you to give some thought to that. So quickly, we'll move to the third category of user, a third style, a sin style, I call it that way, just because not all of us sin in the same ways, but we do follow these similar patterns, is a misuser, someone who's a misuser. And this is someone who uses a particular service or platform or an app in an inappropriate way. For example, they're using social media in a way that maybe, just for example, uses it to divulge way too much intimate information about themselves. Sensitive information, maybe that would be embarrassing or hurtful of others. Um, that can damage reputations or relationships. Um, they have a beef with the church, and they go on to the church Facebook page and post that. That's a misuser, someone using it to damage that reputations and to share sensitive information that probably could have been resolved and more obviously should be resolved in, along biblical parameters and biblical guidelines. Um, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. Let's get some help reading some of these. Rich, would you read Proverbs 11, 13? Um, Pastor Brody, can I get you to do Leviticus 19, 16? And I need one more. Another volunteer hasn't read yet tonight. It could be a girl. Okay, yeah. What's your name? Brad. Brad. Brad, would you read Proverbs 26, 20 through 22? Okay. Um, I think we buy into this idea that... Uh, we, we can just say whatever we can say, whatever we want to say on social media without any reprisal or any concern. It's almost like we go to Facebook like the confessional booth of the Catholics. We just confess everything like it's cathartic to do so. And uh, the Bible warns us about that, that we should be doing that, confess your sins on social media for all to see. It says confess your sins one to another, James chapter 5, verse 16, and doing that in the context of... Um, brethren who we can be accountable to and uh, who will have uh, biblical counsel to offer. That's, that's a better way to use our time. All right, so let's go with uh, Proverbs eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Hmm. Okay. So you catch the meaning and implications of that? Okay, someone with wisdom doesn't uh, immediately divulge every sensitive detail about their life. They, they keep things covered in some sense, okay? Um, there's, this, that's a rich verse. I would love to... It is a rich verse. Rich read it. Uh, but uh, that's not the pun I'm... That's not what I meant, but uh, it did come out that way when you read that very well. Leviticus 19.16. Pastor Brody. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act of your neighbor, I am the Lord. Okay, wow. Uh, do you see how those two ideas are linked together in that verse uh, where it says, you shall not slander your brother and act against the life of your neighbor. Like slander is equated with actually acting against the take the life of your neighbor. It's like doing verbal murder. Okay? And uh, that's how that's like placed on an even playing field here. And how easy it is for us to do this, to say something negative or say something that's unfounded against another person without cause and actually per perform a verbal slaughter, a verbal slander of someone else. And it's, it's, it's a, there it is in the law as being something that we should be um, absolutely intolerant of. Okay, uh, Proverbs chapter 26, right over here. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22. Fire goes out without wood, and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire like wood. Rumors are dainty morsels that sink deep into one's heart. Hmm. Okay, wow, that's, um, so the idea of 
uh, slandering and rumors and all of that can actually talks about it's like throwing logs on the fire and the embers are being stoked through the constant interaction there and and we've seen we've seen threads go viral and get heated because of people throwing another log on the fire to add more insult to injury and how uh, that is something to be wary of completely um, very good so um, a couple other ways sharing unverified or incomplete information on Facebook um, that's a we should be thinking of things that are of good report Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that we should be dealing only in things that are reputable don't deal in the in the um, speculative. Don't deal in the in the spe, uh, spe, um, uh, in the speculative realms where you're just kind of assuming the worst about people uh, without information, without real um, verification. Uh, that can be easily done. We share things all the time on social media without knowing the veracity of the content behind it. And Snopes isn't always reliable, right? They're not always going to be reliable to tell us the truth of it. So we need to be careful. Um, don't be participating in setting, selling, uh, sending along falsehood. How about this? Um, seeking validation or affirming or affirmation or approval from your Facebook posts. I was talking with my buddy Chris Cartwright. He was talking about how this was a particular temptation for him and for others. Just you know, put something out there and you kind of hope someone will like that. And uh, you kind of get this hit of, uh, you know, pleasure from that that someone actually say something nice about your photo or about uh, for girls i know that uh, uh sometimes you like to be told you're beautiful and you like to be affirmed and and you like to be uh people compliment and you wouldn't want to cons- consider yourself a vain person but uh this is something that we do set traps for ourselves by seeking these validations and approval of men uh, remember the scriptures tells us that we need to be careful about even the subtle ways we seek men's approval um, Proverbs 27 verse 2 says let another praise thee and not thy own mouth and I kind of think maybe someone think that's their social media theme verse for their life they want other people to, to give praise to them um, but that's not what the verse is talking about uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us that if, if I Paul says if I seek man's approval do I go about seeking man's approval for if I do I cannot be the servant of God you cannot serve God and be a man pleaser at the same time. They're just completely incoherent together. You cannot have both. So, a, a seeking the approval of men, uh, people will have um, the tendency to judge based on appearances online. First Samuel sixteen verse seven tells us that God um, looks upon the heart. Men look on outward appearances. Proverbs thirty one thirty, uh, especially important to remember for our sisters in the Lord who. Forget that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she's the one that should be praised. And she's the one that should be uh, getting the likes and the shares and the following, I think, online. So uh, the one who fears the Lord. So um, remember that. All right, comparisons. Sometimes I think comparisons on social media can be a problem. Pinterest perfectionism, I always call this. I remember... um, I'm, my wife loves Pinterest. She got really. She loves to look at the great ideas that they have. But sometimes it can be a little deflating when the things you try at home don't come out at all like the thing you saw on Pinterest. They don't look at all like it, and you start to uh, feel the need to be a perfectionist. Um, can become problematic and destructive, self-destructive. Um, Facebook feed highlights. Your Facebook feed, uh, your life doesn't look like someone else's highlight reel on their Facebook feed, and you become disgruntled, discontented. These are all ways of using legitimate platforms and services and apps, but using them in an appropriate way, and they actually end up leading to sow seeds of of, uh, seeds of sin in your heart and corrupt corrupting your heart. So what do we change? How do we recognize the change here? Number one, we recognize how the platform is the... We recognize how to use the platform in the best and most conducive way to bring God glory. Before you post, I I always put this little thing next to my computer. I have a little notes. I have several notes I keep next to my computer. Three things that's helpful to just keep in mind. Before you post, ask these three questions. Number one, does it glorify God? Is what I'm going to say glorify God? Number two, does it edify others and number three does it sanctify me so does it glorify does it edify does it sanctify if it doesn't meet those criteria, then how i can't 
I can't public I can't post that uh, without um, violating scripture. Ephesians four twenty nine says that we should let no corrupt communication proceed out of our mouth, but only that which is useful to the edification of the of the saints. So let let our words let us be known by the words that come out of our mouth and by the posts that we make that we are seeking to glorify God, edify others, and sanctify be sanctified. All right. Um, if you're prone to be discontent, complaintive, or miserable, or angry, don't allow yourself to escape into a video game or check as, uh, social media. If you tend to be tempted to misuse tech, you should, you should flee from it. You should focus first on the heart issues and that, that render you unwilling or render you willing to um, use tech in that sinful way. So there's the misuser. And then again, some of these just categories do overlap because the fourth one is the abuser. This is someone who goes beyond misuse and now is using tech in uh, knowingly, consciously, unrestrained, and um, mis- uh, uh, exploitive ways. And I would almost go so far as to say an abuser is someone who's very exploitive, and that is the sense that they're looking for ways to uh, penetrate and intrude upon the system to use it in the most uh, illicit way possible. They're usually secretive and clandestine in the way they're using it. They're opportunistic, looking for ways in which they can get secret um, they can get secret access or they can get uh, um, get away from others' watchful eyes, believing themselves to be immune and you know, invulnerable to discovery. They are inflated in pride and capable of deceitfully outwitting the suspicions of others. Because of that, they are self-deceived because they think that though they are not seen by others, that they are also not seen by God. And... Uh, this type of person is abusing technology, using technology in ways that are completely what uh, psychologists would call compulsive uses. I don't like that term. I think habitually using it wrong is a better way to think of it. Um, so examples of this would be using it for, to uh, view porn or gambling or hacking or voyeurism or online scheming of some kind, engaging in illicit liaisons, illegal activities, Hawking, sharking, grooming, whatever it might be, these are activities in which someone uses tech to do things in not just illegal ways, but uh, immoral and um, sinful ways. And for someone like that, how do you structure for change? Okay, you've, you've gone the spectrum. Maybe you started as a user, go to overuser, now you're a misuser, and you've gone to the abuser level here. I would say the key thing I would say to you is walk in the light. This is so critical. Your Use of tech thrives in secrecy. It thrives in the way that you are able to shape circumstances so that you can get alone in quiet and under the cover of, of darkness be able to perpetrate your activities. Walking in the light as he's in the light, you need to completely disconnect, move towards making everything you have done, every activity online that you do, as difficult to do without causing personal misery to yourself. That is... Put yourself in accountability. Be completely transparent. You need to put notifications of, um, sorry, uh, get some accountability partners. You can uh, use uh, some tools that actually provide useful um, features that provide accountability. They send emails or notifications to other trusted people who can um, help you maintain accountability. Um, I, I think the better approach is to, Take a season away completely while you deal with the um, the while you deal with the the sin that has taken root in your heart and practice um, good repla- righteous replacements. Uh, make a season of bring forth fruits of repentance. Make the opportunities you once had the most dif- difficult to to exploit. Practice the presence of God. Recognize you need to understand that there's nowhere you can escape the watchful eyes of God. The eyes of God run to and fro in the earth, beholding the evil and the good. You can't, out, you can't escape his watchful eye, and his, he is not ignorant. You're not pulling one over on him. And uh, be mindful that the justice of God, the wheels of God's justice grind slow, but they also grind very fine. So uh, he, the wrath of God is, is mounting for you if you fail to repent and practice a life of righteousness. Repent and turn to him. Cultivate a greater love for God than the love you have for your sin. That's key. Um, 
love for God has grown so cold. You've, that you've lost your love for God and you love your sin greater than that, greater than him. So there's a, there's a rectification that needs to be done there. How do you practice a love for God? You need to give yourself to that. Smash the idols of self. Um, you need to help. You need help if you reach this level. I would not go this road alone. You need help from, right, uh, from mature Christians who aren't afraid to challenge you and who won't put up with deceit in your heart and deceit from you. You need to be completely helped by this. So this is what I would kind of help for a user. I think there are several resources here that I would um, offer you. I didn't bring the one. Did I bring the one? Yeah, okay. Lambert's Finally Free is a really good book for those who struggle with purity on the Internet. Um, excellent read. I would encourage you to pick that up and read that through with a, a maturing Christian uh, who can who can keep you accountability. Um, this addictions a banquet in the grave is also I, I'm finding this to be really helpful. I've read portions of this through by Ed Welch. Um, so if you want to look at those afterwards, have you read that, Vicky? No, but I know he's a good author. Oh yeah, he's a good, excellent one. So hopefully that'll be helpful to you. And uh, so those are four categories. Each of those have slightly different structured patterns for change, but some of the principles hold true for all of them. And if you can see yourself in any of those, I encourage you to get after it and go um, begin the process of, of change. And if, Now, the last, time we, uh, the last thing I have to give, give to you here is specifically with regard to equipping your family. Some of you have children at home, and last week we asked the question in the survey, I think, I gave you like four options, agree, strongly agree, you know, that kind of question. And I said, I think my children are addicted to their smartphone. And to that answer that question, about 65% of you said that you agreed, at least agreed. Uh, some of you said strongly agree. So 65% of us believe that our children are addicted to their smartphones. And that actually is representative of, that was exactly what the same proportion was when we did it in the family life class. So I think that that's holding up pretty standard across churches everywhere. Churches, we, we have this innate fear that our children are being um, eventually growing up into inevitable tech, tech addicts. And uh, we're concerned about that and what that means for their spiritual walk. Um, there has been an explosion of research and studies into this new phenomenon called smartphone addiction. New terms are being coined all the time to describe this anxiety-producing panic that accompanies the dread of being without a device or service or even having a low battery in your cell phone. You can actually watch this happen with some teenagers. They'll start to quiver and shake like, i gotta find a, I got to find a charger. You know, uh, They just start to have serious anxiety, panic attacks uh, without their technology. Since 2011, there's been a ramping up of this rhetoric of what we call, quote, smartphone addiction, and a growing concern about the effects. It's been called digital heroin by others in our culture, uh, that our teens are hooked on this digital heroin, this smartphone addiction. Uh, you can tell it's, it's rhetorical. It's very hyped rhetoric. When you read the conclusions of these studies, they appear in the mainstream media, you'll almost always hear the nomenclature of addiction, often associated with overuse of cell phones particularly, and you'll see cultural commentary and growing segments of people who lack the ability to control themselves with their tech, spending up to eight hours a day being glued to their devices. And they, this happens on all the media special reports in the evening. If you watch TV, every, every network has run these special reports on children in tech or tech in our tech and juvenile tech or whatever they call it um i see these all the time culture watch or some expert or pundit will be on featuring being featured on one of these morning shows and they'll talk about children in their tech and the dangers of addiction and all of this is typecast in the profile of an addict because they'll say these kids are using their devices like an addict would without reasonable limits often causing disruptions in life like an alcoholic would be disrupted in his life without being able to complete duties at school and work and having normal relationships. They're no longer talking. They're talking to, not talking to each other anymore. They're, well, they're talking to each other through tech means, but not through personal means any longer. So that's indicative of a, some addiction happening here. Uh, they're helpless to resist its captivating appeal. It's like a, the allure of the drug and uh, 
the, um, they're without their device. They seem to be jonesing for the next fix where they can get to it. Um, they are willing to forego normal social interactions, get-togethers, preferring the stimulation of their device to actual connection with people who love them. Um, even in their relationships, health, and living conditions, they're all negatively impacted. Some kids are developing these large growths on their neck from the position of their head being down all the time, and the the curvatures of their spine, they're saying, in the next generation, is human, human development is going to go through another change with the body's being continually exposed to that posture, it's going to ruin our, our, physica, our physical um, well-being over time. And uh, so all of this, you've probably heard all of this in, in the media. This inordinate use of devices straight, greatly strains relationships with those who are close to them. And when you hear this stuff, you might be like, like I am. I hear this and I think that they just described the teenager or child that, lived in my, that lives in my house. And, and, and I don't know about you, but when I hear these characteristics of ad- addicts compared to what I observe in my own children, I, I, I shudder, cold, desperate fear, and it run, as it runs down my spine. And I'm, I'm asking myself, am I inadvertently raising a smartphone addict? And this is a fear that our society and our culture share today. But the truth is, the comparison of this kind of behavior that addicts, true addicts, go through with what our young people are doing is mostly hype and rhetoric. I don't want you to buy into that because I think there is something at play here. The language of smartphone addiction is meant to ignite a faux public health crisis, and it drives expensive research grants and funding campaigns and develops yet another pseudo-psychological condition for which you can be diagnosed, labeled, medicated, and treated for. So these superficial parallels between teens misusing their phones as and, and a crack addict actually diminishes what addiction really is and does not help us clearly see what is underlying the problematic behavior. You know, scientists tend to over-medicalize everyday life. And they want us to buy into that term addiction when it's really simply simply a bad habit, a really bad habit that has been cultivated over time. And we short-circuit our ability to diagnose what's really taking place when we use the term addiction because, like our uh, brother Mark Hager says, that the reason they want us to use that terminology is so that, they will believe, that we will believe their remedies. If we call an addiction, we will assign no responsibility to that person and treat them as though they need some kind of uh, medical treatment or some other uh, remedy rather than calling, holding them responsible and helping them apply scriptural truth in getting um, deliverance from that sin. But if you call it what God calls it, Mark will say, then you'll be able to get the remedy God gives it, which is what I want to try to do tonight. Laboring it, uh, labeling in a smartphone addiction makes someone into a victim rather than a responsible party. The following, um, the reason I say that, and you probably are familiar with this, but the way our society conceives of addiction, typically, uh, they hold the person who is an addict not as a responsible party, but they see that person as being a victim. That that person, in fact, uh, the Surgeon General uh, wrote this in the uh, from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of Surgeon General from November 16th, wrote this. He says, we have to recognize that addiction isn't evidence of a character flaw or a moral failing. It's a chronic disease of the brain. And it deserves the same compassion than the other chronic illness does, like diabetes or heart disease. So it's conceivably that the, the argument can be conceivably made that at addiction to your smartphone is the same thing as having diabetes and having heart conditions. You're of no fault for having this problem, and what you really need is uh, a medical expert or a psychological expert to help you counteract this condition. But you see how carefully this type of language disassociates personal responsibility um, from the from the the, the user. This associates his personal responsibility and deprives him of his ability to do anything to counteract his addiction condition. He's not depraved. He doesn't have a character flaw. He doesn't have a moral failing. It's the most blasphemous thing in the world of psychology to suggest that that person is morally culpable and responsible for the condition they find themselves. Um, but we shall see that someone who is addicted to any substance needs not to be robbed of their personal responsibility or to be coddled with some kind of compassion that leaves them in a miserable state because that drains them of all hope. 
casting them as the victim of the terminal debilitating sickness over which they have scant chance of recovery. What they really need is hope, the real hope of the gospel of Christ. (laughs) The gospel that says that while we are all sinners, we have chosen our sin, and we are now experiencing the deathly consequences of that sin. But in that, there remains for us the power of God's Holy Spirit and to empower and rehabilitate us through his grace. This is not done apart from our involvement, but for God works as we labor alongside of God in a desperate struggle against our sin. Remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're not working for our salvation, but we're working out our salvation in a sense that God is working in us both the will and to work of his good pleasure. He says in Philippians 2.13, God's working in us to change our will and to change our works. Uh, uh, it says in um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, we consider him, Christ, who has endured such hostility of sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. That, is, that means we have hope. We have not resisted against the, to the point of shedding of blood in our striving against sin. That is to say, there is hope in Christ by our holy striving and spiritual exertions of obedience to Christ and his word that are powered by God's working of grace that's in our hearts. And ultimately, we will defeat the power of sin's dominion our, over our lives. We can. We have, the, we have been spiritually equipped with the ability to overcome sin. There is no sin that holds you tonight captive that you feel like is completely... Uh, overwhelming and you'll never escape with the power of Christ you can be delivered from that sin by his grace he has made that way possible but this cannot be a case if we resign ourselves to hopelessness as though we've been given an incurable and terminal um, prognosis called addiction so when we read about addictions in the biblical counseling literature, it's always with used with great care and caution. Addiction is the world's, in the world system defined, is defined with a disease model of psychotherapy. However, when we use it, we mean a sinful thought pattern that has become powerful and enslaving, a habit. Biblically speaking, the addiction is chosen sinful behavior, and it begins with buying the lie, and it be, habituates itself in our lives through learned and repeated practice over time. It's like well-worn paths that we wor- that create to worship the shrine of self. You ever think of your sin like that? That your sin is just ritual self-worship? Um, when you use your device to constantly feed affirmation and approval of man, you're just constantly feeding whatever desire creeps up in your heart, you're using the d- digital devices like sacred vessels and self-worship. Like a Catholic might use a rosary bead or a crucifix or some other venerated object to bring to themselves some kind of hope and some kind of um, pleasure or some kind of feeling of euphoria in that sense or comfort okay so they're digi- um, the more traveled we dig- make these paths of self-worship the more difficult they are to escape biblical change requires that we begin a new process to relearn not just new behaviors but also new motivations we need to see how our motivations need to be transformed. Um, I want to give you tonight, I think, um, Mark Shaw was uh, this guy right here. Uh, have you guys got this at home? This is called how, to, how Not to Raise an Addict. It's not about tech per se, but the principles in it are transcendent and actually can apply very well to what we're talking about tonight. His I'll just give you the main premise in two minutes, okay? Main premise of this 50-page booklet, which you can read in a single sitting, is so helpful. After counseling hundreds of addicts, he says, I noticed that addicts tend to have certain mentalities that they all fall into, and these mentalities kind of progress through stages. And the first one, he says, is an entitlement mentality. Someone who has an entitlement mentality believes that everything they have, they deserve to have, and that, uh, that they earned and that by doing that, uh, when they're deprived of it, they feel injustice. They feel that some sense of injustice and that they have been robbed and deprived of something that they rightfully deserve. They have rights, you know, and they have this rights-based way of perceiving the world. And uh, I'll tell you, we, did th- we had this same sort of mentality show up with my, with my son, Christian. We, we made a promise that we'd let him have one hour of tech time every day on his Kindle. And uh, one day came and 
we decided that wasn't the best thing to do for that day, so we took we we said that's not going to happen today. And he got incensed. He was angry. You took away my Kindle, my my tech time. He was throwing a fit, and I could see that entitlement spirit in his heart, as though he deserved it. He earned it. He had this right to it, and uh, we, taking it away caused this response of this this sinful response of uh, being throwing a fit and such and so on and so forth like that. And uh, so this entitlement mentality, he says, that's very characteristic of someone who grows, if you grow up being spoiled, if you grow up being entitled all the time, you tend to think of your, your life as deserving a little pleasure, deserving a little something for your trouble. And that entitlement devolves into consumer, a consumer mentality. And he talks about how the con- how the consumer mentality will, um, will, will be when entitlement turns excessive. Satisfaction won't be found anymore in that one hour of tech time on your Kindle. It becomes excessive and overuse, a, a growing increase in indulgence, an unwillingness to exercise self-control. Now you have teenage boys, 15 and 16 years old. I knew, I knew a couple like this who had a 15, 16-year-old boy who would, boys, a pair of boys, that would go to work for eight hours, come home, and then spend eight to ten more hours at night, well into the evening, uh, playing games all night long. Uh, I had a friend who wouldn't sleep for days until, or leave his house until he could defeat a video game. Um, he was an obsessed consumer, a digital glutton. Um, the Bible talks about that. So someone who has gotten entitlement has gone to consumer stage. He says then the third stage is victim mentality. The victim mentality spawns out of an entitlement and consumerist mentality. If little or no biblical parenting has occurred to this point, it's quite likely that you have a young person who has no responsibilities, no chores, no rules, no personal discipline or structure. They learn to blame everything else for their troubles in life and make excuses for why they're too busy to take responsibility for their actions. So at this point, he recommends that you should be focused in parenting someone with a victim mentality to develop responsibility, self-responsibility, self-control, and working with their hands and setting aside and serving others. Uh, the, the booklet is so helpful in kind of putting, uh, putting this in uh, kind of a helpful way to cons- consider where your, where your children might be. So the victim mentality, if you fail to intervene at that point, it moves quickly to a, a rebellious, uh, a perishing mentality, he calls it. This is the person that goes around and says, oh, woe is me, Everything, every, all the whole world's against me. You all don't understand who I am and where I'm at. And begins me against the world kind of thinking, perishing mentality. You might know someone who gets to this point where they just think, you know, no one can tell me anything because you're all against me. You don't have my best interests in mind. And then finally, um, finally precipitates this final stage, a rebellious mentality where... Uh, discipline uh, where after having systematically estranged themselves from everyone else who has hurt them in life a rebel emerges seeking to be self-sufficient without the need for others and the media world and the tech uh, ecosystem they build around themselves all feeds that a rebel emerges seeking to be self-sufficient without the need for others it's sad it's tragic complete self-centered worship and the one who doesn't trust anyone but himself believes himself to be the self-sufficient and despises anyone who would offer a helping hand. Shaw says in his book, as, as kind of the final thing, he says, discipline is so extremely vital to combat the re- rebellious mentality in our children. Children who are spoiled by their parents often end up being addicts. Do not ruin your child by giving them everything they want. Suffering and doing without can be good teaching tools. You will not hurt your child by depriving them from tech technology. Um, some people would say, "Well, they'll be, they'll be, they won't develop like the rest of their peers. They won't have the tech, technical acumen and abilities in the classroom." No, you can't think of it like that. You're not going to harm them at all. I didn't touch a computer till I was 18 years old, and I I do all, all day long as I work with computers. So they'll catch up, and they're not harmed. You want them. You don't want to put into the hands of someone who's already demonstrating immature behavior a digital device. Because guess what? Digital tools just project that immaturity throughout the Internet. And immaturity breeds destructiveness, self-destructiveness. Give them a device like that and they'll use it in self-destructive ways. So I would recommend delaying that, 
carefully uh, giving it to them over time. You say, well, my kids are already innately more, uh, you know, gifted with tech than I am. I mean, they just pick it up and they know what to do with it. I can't teach them anything. No, they need you to help them understand how to maturely handle it. They might be able to figure it out quicker than you, but you need to help shepherd their heart as they deal with those tools in a slow and measured way and confront them as you see their attitudes changing and their, and their development, their spiritual walk will, um, should be nurtured along the way as well. So I'm gonna, if you'd like a copy of this, I've got a box of them here on the floor. I think that we can give them to you. Um, Debbie, can we? We can do that, right? We've got plenty of them. I hope that you'll take them and read them. You'll get a much better analysis than what I gave you, and it's well worth your time. I think of all the things I was able to read and study this week, that was really helpful, how not to raise an addict. And, again, um, encourage you. If you need help with this, um, any of the pastors here or any of the mature folks, parents who have kids who have now gone through their life, through their house, uh, having waged these battles are available to help encourage you (laughs) in the struggle and thanks for being here i hope this has been helpful to you let's close in a word prayer thank you father we thank you so much for not only giving us your word which speaks so clearly to the the challenges that we face in this regard in this area of our lives not only does the word speak so so clearly to us you've surrounded us in this church with so many people from every walk of life who've been through that season of life with children having raised kids with these technical challenges and can offer the benefit of encouragement and biblical wisdom to us as we navigate these paths ourselves. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, be always focused on the internal spiritual front of the battle that is waged in our hearts over these matters and not just thinking externals thinking about just unplugging routers and just you know and removing apps but be thinking about our hearts and and its relation to god and who we worship may we form our hearts and form our children's hearts to want to worship you to serve you with all their heart mind soul and strength and we'll give you the praise for that give us the aid and the help we require from the holy spirit and the grace we'll need to persevere when it's difficult. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.